kids are discussing these things when adults are not around. So oftentimes we don't even know what our children know. To me, radicalized education would be take, having more of an assessment of where children are. What have they been exposed to? What can we help explain to them in context? Helping parents go through their own sex education so that they are actually prepared to respond. How can we reparent so that they don't, they're not projecting their shame onto their children? Helping them have healthy attitudes and behaviors around sex is going to influence their children. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. So I'm here with Jet Setting Jasmine, a psychotherapist with a strong in- emphasis on intimacy, post-injury, and illness. She is the owner and lead therapist of Blue Pearl Therapy and the co-owner with her partner, King Noir, of the award-winning Royal Fetish Films. Together, they have over 20 years of experience as adult entertainers, directors, and producers. The duo combines their love of art, film, and sex education to produce erotica that stimulates and engages audiences to explore their sexual boundaries. Their work on the decolonization of sex, porn, and politics has been featured in Huffington Post, Rolling Stones, Paper Magazine, Vice, Playboy, Forbes, Cosmopolitan, BBC, Psychology Today, and now Strippers and Sages. Jasmine, thank you so much for being here today, and thank you for your incredible work in the field. Thank you so much for having me. I am loving the idea that I get to add this to my resume. There you go. Perfect. (laughs) We are loving the idea that Strippers and Sages has become a resume item, (laughs) a rite of passage. (laughs) That's right. So I'd love to start by just having you speak a little bit about your journey, how you came to this work, what the origin story of Royal Fetish Fetish Films is, and your partnership and collaboration with King Noir. Absolutely. So it has been, it's been a 10-year professional journey together um, as a team. And But before that, we both come from our own respective um, experiences with sex work and human Um, human development, human behavior work. Um, My journey started really in the sex work industry at 30. I was already doing, I picked up a couple of um, dancing gigs more either for the like coyote, ugly fun of the sensationalized aspect of stripping um, to filling in some gap, financial gap moments early in life through between um, ending high school and my master's program. But um, I never really considered it as a full-time career. What I did find, though, in those little pickup gigs is that there was a lot of active listening going on in those strip clubs. There was a lot of first responding to relationship issues. There was a lot of career and life decisions that were being made with the company of um, dancers and the support and the guidance and the consistency and companionship and relationship building. And then just some really hot, like hot visuals. Right. And so I, um, at some point in my academic career and professional career, I realized that those skill sets were really cross, you know, that I, I was things that I was learning in school in the professional world. I honed them in the strip club. You know, and then I met King Noir um, on a radio show. He was a guest of mine. So I do all podcasts. They are rites of passages because you just never know who 
<laughs> who's listening, who you're going to meet. They're so rich um, and so important. And, and he talked about his work with freedom, liberation, and equality um, on all topics and how he was doing like philanthropic work throughout the globe and also doing like these sexy um, erotic touch massage parties and um empowering women to to purchase his services and creating safe spaces or safer spaces for women to experience um, their menu of erotic services. So I was like, oh, I want that. I want all my friends to have that. I want all my clients to have that. Like, let's let's travel with this. And um, he really enjoyed the work that I was doing where I was really just giving myself permission to explore all things um, sex, uh, just I became a sexual opportunist. That's when I took on that label. If the opportunity looked like it could potentially be a good time, like I would try it. Yeah. And <laughs> why not? Um, came the birth of Royal Fetish Films. Let's try filming. Let's give our um, our submissive uh, camera. Let's allow her to explore sex behind the behind the lens and see what that looks like. And for us, you know, let's explore each other's body, knowing that someone is, you know, the voyeur voyeuristic aspect and we watched and it was like wow we don't see this in porn we don't see two people of color enjoying each other's body romantically um engaging in hardcore sex that's not humiliating demeaning or stereotypical um creating a storyline or no storyline it doesn't have to follow um this negative stereotypical narrative of black sex and so when i watched i was just like I want that for myself. I want my friends to see this. <laughs> I want everyone to experience this. And um, King and I decided to, to put that forward. And the response was so positive. It was so clear from all of our audiences, whether with our live shows, our parties, or those that were starting to watch our early work, that there was a market and a desire to see um, people of color engaging in all aspects of sex, sexuality, kink, um, BDSM, fetish, like the whole umbrella. And to be able to do so really seamlessly, you know, at the pace that they're at, understanding like that we we have generational trauma when it comes to how our bodies have been sexualized and fetishized and monetized. Um, you know, that it may take a couple of times going to a kink party or just being in a space that's really highly sexually energized and feeling safe before one wants to participate or even considers themselves a participant. Um, so yeah, that's our journey is to put all of our all of our advocacy, all of our politics, all of our ethics and value into all of our sex and and hope that it liberates people when they watch it and when they engage in it. I really, really appreciate how your that film was sort of the medium that you started with and thinking about the visual. And you know, we hear so much about porn being demonized for how all the negative impacts, which understandably that's what you sort of sought out to address, right? But mm -hmm. I'd love for you to speak about also as a clinical psychotherapist, the impact of that imagery on the psyche and the liberatory healing, creative, educational potential of pornography that you're tapping into. Why mm -hmm. is it your chosen medium for activism and how does that the experience of consuming sort of healthy, um, positive uh, porn that doesn't perpetuate those stereotypes help to advance culture? So that's a big question. I will bite off um, 
only what I can chew. <laughs> and um, definitely, you know, point, I, I, I feel like saying like, um, there are some people who are doing some excellent work you know, really narrowing that down and chipping away at so many of those aspects. And, and I'm sure they're highlighted on, on other podcast episodes. So listeners, you know, this is just going to be a bite size of that. So something that's so important to me is that media, just like any other industry, has gatekeeping. So gatekeeping of of messaging, gatekeeping of what um, what whoever those gatekeepers are, want their consumers to be able to um, to engage with for a million different reasons. And I think that, that that's business. Um, this is a capitalistic society that we live in. And uh, that, that capitalistic society is built on a couple of principles, which include oppression, you know, and that oppression is in every single industry. If we were talking about medicine, we would be talking about healthcare disparities. If we're talking about the housing market, we would be talking, you know what I mean, about housing insecurity and the disparities between people of color and those that are not. So this form of media is, is no different. It happens to be a love interest, just film in general of King of Kings. For me, are just artistic, any any form of artistic um, expression is just beautiful. Like any any way that people can protest artistically, I think it's beautiful, as well as um, it just be able to express their innermost feelings through their body. I'm a dancer by background. <laughs> So, you know, this is just another form, another medium. I think if I had any skill with painting, then maybe that it would have been that. Or if I was patient enough to write, it would have come out in that way. So, um, but however, I, I do think the visual art is so important because just imagine when you're a little girl and or a boy, whatever, a child, and you see another doll baby, not even by color, just, oh, something else that looks small like me. You know, and how exciting that is. And, oh, that I eat, the baby eats, right? So you start to see how we represent ourselves with inanimate objects, even. Taking it a step further, being able to see yourself actualized on uh, in a cartoon. Um, and then we start to think about genders and, and, and all other ways of representation we learn through media, billboards. There's a reason why certain uh, there's a reason why certain people are plastered on billboards to sell particular products, and so sex is no different. It's just another industry where things are sold. Um, sex is sold with the idea of continuing to educate or inform. I should say that that's probably a better way to inform the consumers. There, and another way to engage the most consumers or a particular consumer. And so how we're marketed, unfortunately, is not with, it's not informed by us. Mm-hmm. You know, so I look at um, two of the exact same sex acts being marketed. One says um, hip hop anal whores and one says anal queens. The exact same set same costumes shot by the same company. I'm pretty sure that it was casted by the same, you know, it's like, if you know a porn company, it has like, you know, the same departments, videography, photography, whatever. And the labeling and the marketing is completely different. So when I go to look for anal sex and to learn about how my body may or may not interface with (laughs) anal sex. So I even like looking at it before I try it and I type in, you know, 
um, anal, mo- uh, anal, let's just say um, black anal models and hip hop anal whores comes up versus anal queens. I, I, you know, I just, it automatically stereotypes me to um, a particular genre of music, which is really a particular age range when we kind of think of hip hop culture. And what does that have to do with my body? <laughs> you know, like these kind of things exist. So when we had an opportunity to show um, our sex represented and people say like, oh, I always wondered about choking, but I could never visualize what that would look like for me. Um, because the idea of perhaps a white body choking a black body may trigger some feeling, some thoughts, some dynamics that go beyond just feeling pleasured right? Um, Same thing with flogging. Like, it just feels good. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a power dynamic. It's a sensation that just feels good. It's a turn on. It's someone's attention onto my body or mine onto theirs. And for us to only see that represented with white kinksters, that does give a dynamic. I don't want to be whipped by a white stranger that I haven't had an opportunity to establish all of this rapport. And you don't get to establish Establish like, you know, a, a five-year relationship on a porn set. You got to kind of get in and out. <laughs> so that being said, a lot of times these things don't feel safe in our industry. So they don't get filmed in our industry. So they don't get represented. Um, and we were able to bring all of these things with our bodies, um, have conversations about them, interviews, podcasts before, before releasing films uh, so that we could contextualize the art. And then allow people to interact and engage, see themselves represented or be able to, at least their companies were able to see the value of having more inclusion in the, in the type of work that they create. Mm-hmm. Big answer. Sorry. Big may, question. May, maybe big, I answered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> big question. As you said, amazing answer. Yeah. I mean, and I'd, I'd like to go deeper into this idea of how white supremacy has informed the means of production not only in porn, but in everything, as our country is in a deep reckoning with right now, and how you on set are creating space for a certain conversation to be had and a safe space to be created for your performers. It seems like you are really transforming the culture of the porn industry and leading through example. I think I read that you're making a documentary about about a recent year. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? I'm with, I'm with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Cannot, cannot comment. Um, yeah, I mean, and so just I'd love to hear about your practices, your best practices on the set, especially, I mean, I work in film, uh, non-adult film, and it's just, you know, you're on set, there's a budget, like, there's no time for talk about your your intergenerational trauma, but it's so relevant and important. And so I'd love to yeah. hear, there's something very anti-capitalistic as well in terms of your approach to creating a spaciousness on set. So yeah, I just like yeah. to hear about how I, you run your sets. Thank you. I think our best practice is that it's an evolving practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that is kind of like evolving in the sense of knowing um, knowing more about who you're going to be working with. And I think uh, like of all the terrible things that have happened with during the pandemic in terms of being able to produce um, to produce work the way that we're used to and employ folks and, and, and have the resources that you need is that we have learned to like work with a skeleton crew, which means you actually get to know that skeleton crew a lot better than you normally would a large production, right? So we've taken advantage of a scaled back 
crew, but that's something that Royal Fetish Films is all already accustomed to. We are, we're a small company, right? Um, and so the more you know the folks that you're working with, the more you kind of need, the more you have an idea of what kind of support you need to build in, um, the more you know how sensitive the, the, um, the content is you're working with, the more, and I guess not even the more you know, like the more consideration you give to the sensitive nature of the content, the more you can build in safety. I think what happens is we do things like a template and we think that that's efficiency. What's not efficient is dealing with hurting someone on set. That's not efficient because you have to stop production. You have to maybe even consider not using that material, right? Then you have to worry about the liabilities. And I'm just talking about from a business perspective. I'm not even talking about the emotional damage. I am not even getting into the human aspect of this. Just like you said, there's a budget and there's time, but you really need to think about the cost on the outset of post-production if you don't get it right. Right. in you know onset you also have to be creative we've learned how to use so much of our time uh virtually we do uh, a lot of pre-production a lot of getting ahead of things that may be sensitive onset um a lot of learning about boundaries and things that went well and haven't gone well and no we don't have our principal actors um, and directors and producers having these conversations we do use our production assistants we use our intimacy coordinators um, and those are kind of the things that we have to kind of think about um, where can we employ other people who are really great at this work and who can really see blind spots and gaps in productions and preparation. And those are also going to be the people that are going to be the liaisons on set. Mm-hmm. So while you're kind of thinking about this from um, a, an efficiency and a cost, um, a cost uh, diversion, a cost effect, effective, and also we do live in a capitalistic society, so we can't we have to look at kind of what a hybrid model looks like right now. And so for us, it is um, how, do, how do we utilize the best fit staff to do some pre-production? How do we get um, our actors and actresses to start thinking about the content before they get on set? When you're like, oh yeah, that's right. This, is, uh, this does involve a lot of intense um, kink work, BDSM, you know, this is going to be a hardcore BDSM scene. Oh, this, this is going to be uh, a significant power dynamic, or um, it's a consensual, non-consensual scene that's going to take place for eight hours. Mm-hmm. Shit. What kind of prep work have I done emotionally for this? Right. And so we have our, um, our pre-production crew saying, we'd like you to think about this. Let us know if you'd like to talk to anyone between now and on set. When you are on set, I'm going to be your go-to person. If you'd like us to assign anyone else, let us know. Are there any things that you could think about in advance that we could make? And it's amazing what people come up with when they're prompted to think about these things. I'm also a psychotherapist. So I think about what people tell me after. What is a good work day to one of my clients? who have experienced trauma, shit, what's a good work day for me? When I'm like, oh my gosh, they have the kind of water that I like on set. <laughs> you know? It's and, little and things. It is a little things. And we've gotten away from that, trying to like produce, produce, produce. Mm-hmm. Um, we overproduce and you burn out your number one, you know, your, your, your number one resource 
is your your talent. And also, I think about talent extends beyond the people that are in front of the camera. It takes talent to be a videographer. It takes talent to produce. It takes talent to direct. That's also your talent. So I think it, we're responsible to, when we're doing sensitive stuff in front of the camera, whatever that is, we're responsible to the psychological safety of the, the crew as well. Well, it's certainly apparent how your background in clinical psychology would have a huge impact on how you are running your sets and having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so I, I just, just for um, correct to say, I am a psychotherapist. I'm not a psychologist. Um, that's okay. And um, one of the things I, one of, one of my degrees is a clinical social worker. And so that's all about wraparound services. Right. right. As everybody, that's everything. That's the com- informed community. Um, that's pre, during, and post. And, and so, yes, that is totally informing the work that we do. King is a musician. He knows what it's like to travel. Um, he knows what it's like to have this kind of like hierarchy when it comes to um, entertainment and how if we level set, you actually get kind of like the best quality performance, the best quality um, work and relationship. And then like you keep working with people, you build these relationships over, over years. And that we're all about social sustainability. Mm-hmm. That's really fantastic. Yeah. How, how you're both weaving in your professions outside and having such a holistic approach. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more now about this idea of decolonizing the industry and, and what that means. You, you and King did an interview with Paper Magazine And he spoke about how racialized fetishes are rooted in colonization and white supremacy, predicated upon the oppressor always romanticizing and fetishizing the oppressed. And of course, we see this through the continued hypersexualization of Black women or the big Black cock and all these fetishes. And I'm curious how you, of course, are seeking to turn those stereotypes on their heads. And then I wonder, is there even, is there a place for that sort of fetishization um, right. Like, is there a way to, if they are going to continue in society, have them, is there a proper way to engage or to showcase mm-hmm. them? So another sort of big two-part question for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I have mixed feelings on, on, on all of it. It's complicated, right? So it is. And I think, you know, the part that, the part that isn't complicated is acknowledging um, where, some of our, um, some of where our sexual stereotypes come from, the things that we fetishize, we romanticize. It is important for us to look at our sexual history in any culture, you know, any culture. We, you know, we look at how um, before there was written um, written language the way that we know it, there are drawings of, of sexual expressions, right? And we th- we're able to think about different sexual orientations and identities based on based on those historical drawings, stories, and, and things of that sort. So our documentation of our sexual experience is incredible incredibly important. And it also has informed the way that people of color interact with their own bodies um, because they've been over-sexualized, hyper-sexualized, monetized, commoditized. Um, There is, and continues to be fetishized and even in modern media, either misrepresented or invisible. And um, 
so so that in itself just even decolonizing pornography or decolonizing how decolonizing sex it really is going to start with taking care of ourselves first first and foremost so this continued positive representation and when i say positive it just means i'm representing myself the way i want to represent myself you don't have to agree that like you know, oh, all Black women should go and start doing porn. Like, no, just, you you know, how you want to wear your hair, how you, you know, feel about the things that you can or cannot do with your body. How has the church, which Christian, and we can talk about the decolonization of religion as well. How has white supremacy in your religion had an impact on your sexuality or your relationship to your body? Starting there. And then as in terms of like the industry, so I think it is completely a two-pronged approach starting in the industry, um, who is informing decisions about sexual representation uh, on camera or in, in, in any form of media, who's in your leadership? Let's decolonize just your board, your executive board. Let's decolonize where your money goes to who you support right? Like all of these things, we look at a list of um, these large companies who do all this philanthropic work and none of it goes to sex work organizations that support BIPOC, uh, BIPOC folks in the adult industry. And so, you know, there's so many different ways that we can decolonize, deconstruct, but it really does need to be informed by the people who've been marginalized. How many uh, trans people of color are represented in the decision-making of the companies that promote that specific, uh, you know, that specific media. That to me is what decolonizing. Now, where is there space? There is space for these fetishes when, like, I think just kind of like all BDSM play and fetishes, you get to play when you are done fucking working. That's it. That's it. Like, you know, how it's like everything you need to learn, you learned in kindergarten. You get to play when you have done the hard work of making sure that there is already a safe space, a safe way to engage in play. When you tell me that we can engage in play and it's not going to hurt my pocket, my feelings or my livelihood, we can start playing with all this cops and robbers shit when they stop actually doing the cops and robbers shit in real life. You know what I'm saying? Like that cop porn company, like it's not a joke. Because it really is not a joke. You cannot make a mockery of something that we're actually actively dying of. And so sex parodies, all for it. Hee ha ha. But not if that parody is coming at the expense of someone actively dying every fucking couple of minutes, you know? So we can play. We can do a fucking fetish museum if you want. Once we have actively fix the issue in real life. Like, so we can't really allow people to escape into fantasy when our reality is threatened. So that's one approach. Now, the second approach to that is let Black people decide that that's the play that they want. Let people of color, let trans people decide, like, you know what? That is my fetish. That's a part of my sexual liberation. I want that. I want to produce it. I want to direct it. I want to star in it. I want to market it. I want to distribute it. And I will hire you, white person, to play the role that makes me feel safe. Because in real life, I'm not. So those are my two options. Maybe there's others. And, and like, that's cool. But those are my boundaries. Yeah, it's, it's really really strong insight and it's, it is tricky territory because as 
you both point out how there's this trickle-down effect of pornography on how people understand the world in general. So they're trying to diversify people's understanding of porn and also of diversity. And so um, I think that that understanding, again, of like the larger systemic culture making, how the art that you're putting out for right now needs to actually or can help to dismantle some of that. You know, 100%. Um, I'm sorry, something I just wanted to think about, like, so that's, that's so big. And so I want to think about something um, that's like micro that, like the, the ways that we may be able to um, see way, see how porn can influence the decolonization. So, so sometimes this stuff can get so like big and I don't want to lose people's ability to, to participate at wherever, whatever level they're in. Um, but something so small as like me being able to keep he- my head wraps on when we're engaged in um, when we're filming or when people come to our sets and they have like their waist beads or whatever their cultural jewelry is or their cultural expression or the pillowcases are, you know, of tribal fabric that, that make them more comfortable or more represent- represented. We leave those things in. You know, we ask people to bring those things because that is yet another way of showing that like sex um, and our cultural representation or our truest representation um, can be included, is included, makes people actually feel more seen, more heard, um, more, in- I don't want to say like more engaged with the art when they can see aspects of themselves or aspect of their culture represented. Mm-hmm. So small things, small things, small things are okay too. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess at the risk of making it big again, I, I would like to read a quote that I'm actually not sure if this is from you or from King who said this, but said these things seep into your brain at these moments when you're truly letting go. When you have an orgasm, you're letting the outside world leave you alone for a little what, to rub one off or jerk off. But if you're watching this and masturbating, it normalizes the brutality that you're seeing on black bodies on the news at night. And it starts to work on your psyche in that way. And I think that's sort of underscoring what you're saying earlier as well in terms of reinforcing rather than helping to, especially when sex is in the realm of fantasy, right? Like let's actually tap into the potential of fantasy to present Mm -hmm. not the reality that we're seeing that we so desperately need to change. Absolutely. And King's, um, that's King's quote for sure. Because I would never say jerk off. As I started to read it, I was like, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't who I'm speaking to right now. (laughs) So him, so him, but such a, such a great point because, you know, one of the things I I remember in that discussion talking about is, you know, when you're having, you're having this experience of like, let's just say that cop porn, um, cop is specifically that I can't, porn patrol is what it's called. Um, when you're watching that fantastical bullshit of like someone enjoying being arrested and fucking their way out of bondage um that is not in within the realm of like bdsm it's not contextualized around that type of bondage it is really um and so seeing you know a white police officer um really dehumanize this person and subject them to a sexual act for freedom mm-hmm. like that's tr- tr- traumatic on so many levels because we know sexual assaults by police officers um, exactly in that type of, in, in that type of realm is, or that type of scenario is high, not just, not only for black and brown people, but also for women as well. Um, and actually there shouldn't be a statistic that's associated with that at all. Right. So <laughs> it's kind of like that exists. 
that's that's really horrible. And um, you know, so what someone watching that and having like King is talking about like this this um orgasmic cellular level moment and then seeing that the next day in the morning news and going like, oh, but you know, like they liked it or or, you know, or associating it with even that that mm-hmm. oxytocin release as well on mm-hmm. this cellular level that you're saying. I wonder what happened next, right? right? Or they could have just if they just complied, right? If they were, if they just did what they said, we literally hear that that scenario play out where it is a you are doing this is an illegal stop. This is an like all your rights are being violated. But if you just do what I say, we all orgasm at the end, mm-hmm. and then we see this. You know, the the parallel is too close. It's too close, you know, and we see this and in, in, uh, for those that don't give a shit about black people, like, let me give you, let me give you something to de- to help us kind of make porn a little bit healthier. Let me just give you where, how close to, of the line that we're getting to pe- pedophilia mm. when it comes to porn, you know, um, those, there's so many ways to describe someone's um, prepubescent body that could be like attracted, like small boobs or a small frame or whatever, like those things can be really attractive without attaching it to childlike, you know, um, or the, we're starting to see the sexualization of young boys at a very, very, very high rate in porn, Mm. as well as incest, incestual relationship. And I think that is, as King is mentioning, what are we normalizing of this fantasy world? Um, that is a real in, in real life problem Mm -hmm. and, or vice versa. What is it in real life problem that we're seeking fan, you know, fantasy, fantasies about it um, in, a, in, a, in an industry where those things are very acceptable. One of the things that King and I are totally against is the use of the word boy, girl in porn. For what? It's that there's by clear definition, that's not an, an adult right. and it's an adult industry. Right. Yeah. And I, I just really appreciate, um, you know, there's the, there's the fight, fight it approach of like shut down porn. And then there's the build it, like build the new revolution and make it redesign it, redesign it. And how, and how you're, again, you're like, you're turning it on its head. You're tapping into, yes, it does have this profound psychological effect. It does shape society. So therefore we need to seize it and take it into our hands and make it something that's more aligned with our values. So I want to, it, on that note, switch to talking about the positive aspect of fetish and like, what is fetish? How do you think about it? You you were throwing these fantasy flight parties to help people, especially women, explore their fetishes and desire. So how can fetish be harnessed to help arrive at a more expansive mm. and healthy and, and aligned um, sexual orientation or erotic orientation? So, um, so the term fetish is the um, sexual arousal um, that comes from uh, inanimate object, right? So uh, that's the super, super basic. Um, the way that I I like to take it as any form of sex that does that is not in a, is not informed to procreate. So just sex that you don't plan on having a baby with. <laughs> um, what most sex then? <laughs> most sex, exactly. Right. And so that's really, it's really broad. It's a huge umbrella. I try not to get too specific with it because um, it is already generalized. You know, when we ask, when people say like, oh, you're a fetish trainer. Um, so what's the big thing about feet? 
I'm like, mm-hmm. they help you walk. Um, like, where are we going with this? You know, it's already so, so um, it's like specific to, it must be about feet or it must be leather and latex. So um, when I was throwing these parties, we were really coming off of the, like I was coming off my own misunderstanding of like all that sex could be, you know, it was so limited in my head to like, I'll be with this partner for the rest of my life. And maybe if we ever get spicy, we'll have a threesome. Right. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, what a sad, sad life. (laughs) But you know that, and and that's not necessarily a sad, sad life. That's just, you know, where, where I was. And I think um, so much of my desire and motivation was just letting people know what the options were that were available to them in their monogamous relationships or their whatever relationships or their lives of of um, exploring sex and sexuality that it wasn't limited to the, the sad little three things that I could think of um or you know oh yeah the other things like we'll go to strip clubs like and and that would you know be date night which is awesome right but um sad that I was limited to only thinking about those things as options for a lifetime of sex. And so with our fantasy flight parties, we would, you know, just kind of get a little bit of information about what these, um, where these women were sexually, like what they were hoping to learn. And so much of it was focused around like pleasing their partner, pleasing their partner. And um, so we, we bring some toys and things that would um, help them engage in that way. But then we would also bring some self so, like uh, pleasure centered activities, helping people tap into like their own sensations and what these things feel like being done to you. So you would have a better understanding of how to actually do them to others and negotiate consent and things around that. So even just like, I, it just, I smile um, big thinking about those early parties where like 50 shades of gray was very popular mm-hmm. then. And like the word, like all fetishes were only around like, you know, dom and, and sub and how we were able to like help people expand their thoughts, um, expand like, okay, so you don't like spanking. What do you think about um, flogging instead? It's like, isn't that spanking? Well, yes, but, and then kind of broadening it and allowing people to go like, oh yeah, I do like that sensation there, um, but I never want it to be a hand. Okay, perfect. Now we're building your, your, you know, your fetish tool belt or, you know, your fetish wish list. And we've been, we've had clients over for, between each other over the last um 10 years that have grown like, okay, now I'm graduating. I wanted to go back to spanking. Can we have a class on how to do that properly? You know, so we bring this in our, um, we, we oftentimes the, the work that we do in film, we like to have it accompany, you know, whether it's a workshop, um, or a webinar or some other teaching tool about how to bring this fetish to life in a safe way. We certainly work with others, uh, with folks that they're engaged in fetishes that we're not, but helping them connect to other specialists, helping them link to other communities. Um, because oftentimes when people are not connected to communities, that's when people get hurt mm-hmm. emotionally, physically, financially. They get duped um, thinking that they're, you know, dealing with a professional sugar <laughs> sugar dom. And the next thing you know, you got like a whole house on in your name right? <laughs> or you think you're dealing with a financial dominatrix and you're and the next thing you know you're losing your job wow due to blackmail mm-hmm. so having a professional guide is incredibly important and Kay and I you know have served as these ambassadors to people's kinks and it's been an honor 
an ambassador to the kink. Love it. Best <laughs> business card ever. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I mean, it's so fantastic that you are accompanying your films with the workshop, as you're saying, of how to then explore this in real life. That's like such a next level degree of, I think, responsibility and care for the communities yeah. that are engaging with your content. And I mean, gosh, can you imagine? Especially I'm thinking about, and we're definitely going to talk about parenting and sex mm-hmm. ed in a minute. Since so many young people, porn is still their gateway to learning anything about sex. I mean, imagine if every video you watched then came at least with, let's here's a little analysis of what you're seeing here. Here's how you can do this safely. Here's what's problematic about what you just watched, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I just think about, you know, and, and we do, we're able to have these lectures at different universities. And um, I just think about like how much better sex would be would be for me as a young person, you know, just kind of being able to like be in a, just like, oh, we can talk about that, you know, or, oh, what I just watched, like, oh, I could do that, you know, or I could never do that. <laughs> Those right. kind of things, you know, the, like they're so important. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I love what we're doing. I love the comprehensiveness. I love using every aspect of our experience. I love monetizing it. Mm-hmm. I do like, you know, let's talk about it. Right. Why yeah. not? You know, and also just giving a new model of how people can use every aspect of their content to like the betterment of the industry as we're talking about this redesign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you about your business model and how, because so much porn is still freely available, which is problematic mm-hmm. in terms of the production lines. Like how are you um, able to monetize and keep your paying audiences for all of your offerings? Yeah, I think, you know, right now we are definitely like an an influencer society, right? You know, and so um, it's like, let the, let the free, let the free stuff go. You know, there's, there's so much of our stuff that it can be like the interviews that we put out there. Like, why not? It's educational, it's engaging, and you get to see your um, porn star or performer talking to you in a way or engaging with you in a way that you don't normally see you normally get to see they're like ah, 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 right but right. then you're actually hearing them say like oh yeah like I that like that makes me say ah oh yeah please um let's make sure that when we when we shoot we do more of that like I think that that's really that's entertaining as well mm-hmm. so that allow that to be the free entertainment that engages and then you know helps to influence that person to look at other work that you do mm-hmm. the other thing for king and i is like like i mentioned the type of relationships that we're able to build with our clients they are sustainable mm-hmm. you know so if we are if some of that free content that that is out there helps you say like i i would trust these people to come and host an event mm-hmm. or a retreat for my friends and i Oh, they're a real couple. I would love for them to help my, you know, my partner and I engage um, in BDSM. So a lot of stuff I have to look at, it's free marketing. Um, You know, where can you put your content, your message and get like a million views of people all across the world and engage with you in such an intimate way? Pornhub, (laughs) Xbiz. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, just before we move on from fetish, I, I, since you do work with trauma and illness and injury, I'm curious about um, how you see fetish and then any other aspects of your work as helping to heal and helping people, whether it's intergenerational trauma, bodily trauma. Um, what is, what's your approach? as? With There's a, a, a lot of different ways um, that I do feel that um, kink 
uh, BDSM play or anything under the kink umbrella um, that is guided in a sex positive way, in a patient centered way, can be really, really helpful. I mean, there's so many releases that happen in BDSM. Um, You know, there's like, I feel like at a cellular level, you can feel um, the sensory release that can be very difficult as an adult to engage in other forms of play, mm-hmm. right? Um, I have clients that utilize, and these are, are um, not necessarily my therapy clients, but my kink clients where I don't like shut off what I know in one space into the other, but um, utilize flogging sessions to get through depressive um, cycles where we do get the release of the dopamine and the endorphins that you mentioned earlier, where we do address the cortisol in their body in a way that they feel is more holistic than medication. And I, uh, I support my client where they are. You know, um, where they find that that is way better than substance use. That's a way that their partner can engage with them intimately without asking, how are you? Is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can do? Where there's something that, yes, there is something that you can do that you can engage in my with my body in a way that maybe is not sexual, um, but it is it it is a release for both of us. Um, even for the person that is doing the flogging, like, let me tell you, there's a lot of physical release that is happening, you know, and even watching your partner's body, that anxiety come down, um, them to allow them to see somebody who is stressed quite often do this. That is like, as a top, that's yummy, you know? <laughs> so, um, so in that way, that's one. The second way that I find like, really probably more than anything is if you are engaged in um, a professional or a proper um, BDSM play session, you're going to get an opportunity to talk about your likes, your dislikes, your boundaries. You're going to um, be encouraged or no play will happen if you are unable to articulate um you know, the way that you may or may not respond um, if you are no longer enjoying what's happening. So how you give and take consent back before, during, and after a session, how you like to be cared for after a session, your aftercare. These are the all the things that are violated when we have trauma, sexual or not. These are the things that um, when violated cause you to detach from your body in an experience. And when you are able to engage with them before you even participate in engaging with them, you're already attaching yourself to your body. Oh, do I like that? I don't know. Let my brain travel to that space. How does it feel today? Uh, okay. That feels good. So you're, you know, you are actively doing some of the things that take us like eight to 16 weeks in therapy to help make the connection and no shade. Like I'm a whole, whole talk therapist, um, and think like mental health is incredibly important. And no, no part of this conversation is saying to supplement, excuse me, to substitute this for, for mental health. I'm thinking about it totally more from a supplemental, Mm -hmm alternative type of therapy um, and one that does have to be guided, but how beautiful to put into practice that negotiation of boundaries where um, trauma really is the essence of a violation Mm -hmm. of one's boundaries, one's autonomy. So that's how I use kink towards healing um, and to helping other people connect with their bodies and their traumas in a safe space. Beautiful. So beautiful. 
Um, all right, I know we're, we're close to at time. I really want to talk about your okay. parenting, your sex positive parenting, and how and when that emerged um, is mm-hmm. at what point in your work and just what 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 your approach is to helping people. It is such rich territory. Um, and so I'd love to hear about that. So we have three children. Our oldest is Moni. She's 20. Our uh, middle child is Star. She's 17. And the baby baby is Majesty. And he is three. And the brand itself, Sex Positive Parenting or Porn and Parenting, um, that probably started about three or four years ago. Um, But we had already been like traveling as a family for the most part, including for our adult work um, and and working to make all kinds of accommodations to make sure appropriate things were in front of our uh, our in front of our children whenever we have to work and inappropriate things are, you know, kept separate that our travels um, and our time, our time working in the way that we work include family time, um, quality family time. Um, What did it look like for us to tell our children about our journey into sex world along the way? It's a continuum. We never like sat down and was like, this is the conversation and we're not having it again. It's been like, hey, I'm going to buy a pole. Hey, I'm putting it in the living room. Hey, don't touch my pole. (laughs) Hey, wait, can you show me how you did that thing in gymnastics so I can help keep myself up on the pole? (laughs) Right? And um, so those kind of conversations, hey, this is a guy that I I met um, and we're going to start working together. Hey, you guys are going to your grandmother's house because said guy that I met that we're working together, we're throwing a party in Florida and we're going to need to, he's going to need to be in our home. Um, so everything gradual, everything age appropriate. And people started asking us, like, how do you, well, first, first people started trolling us. What do you think your kids are going to be like, you know, because of the kind of stuff that you're doing, or you're going to hell and your kids are going to, because the kind of work that you do, how do you explain this to your children? Aren't you afraid that they're going to be just like you? I'm like, aren't your kids afraid they're going to be just like you? (laughs) Like, All parents should be worried that their children are not going to be a better version of you, right? Like that's so small to think that. Um, and so, you know, we just sort of like addressing this in really small micro doses as people either had the courage to troll us or had the courage to ask us, um, I'm, I'm in the industry and I'm pregnant and I see that you have three kids. Like, can you give me some advice? And so we just started talking about our experiences as a traveling family, a working family, um, a family that has experienced bullying before and how we've equipped our children to be able to respond, Um, how we have shared with our children that our work is our work. It's not their shame because we don't have any shame. So there's none to pass on. Um, This is nothing that you have to feel like you have to be a part of or that you feel like you have to hide. Um, If you feel uncomfortable talking about our work, please allow us. Everybody has an iPhone. If, you know, when people would say like, hey, I, what kind of work does your mom do? My daughter would be like, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Miss so-and-so would like to know what kind of work you do. Miss so-and-so here, here's the phone. Amazing. And so we so equipped our kids to be like, call us. If I see a, if I see my kids are calling, I know like I'm going to answer right away. So I'm going to help them out of any of those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, 
now they don't, they don't even need it. Our oldest is now a part of our content management company. She does not manage our, any of our content. We still block each other from our work. Um, but she helps other talent in, in managing their brands. This is a way for her to bring her own talent into our family leg of the business. Our young, or sorry, our middle child who is not old enough to engage in adult industry work is like gross to all of it. But how much does it pay? That's all she wants to know. She's like, I don't, I, I don't, you know, like I'll say like, okay, I'm going to be in LA um, and I'm going to, you know, I have a couple shoots lined up. She doesn't want to know what they are. She doesn't need to know what they are. She just goes, can I order the groceries now before you leave? You know, like that's as a kid should be concerned with, are my basic needs going to be met? So um, other things that are important to us are like create, creating work standards that allow people with families to work in the adult industry, um, shoots at reasonable times, um, being flexible about that kind of um, work. During the pandemic, we had a MILF and DILF shoot, which was just moms and dads, um, which meant that everyone was working from the same safety protocol because we all had children who couldn't be vaccinated to consider. You know, and those are the kind of things like, hey, no one's going out to go like grab a drink after. No, you know, like we're all from the like no Tinder dates. We don't care how private your room room is. You know, Um, those are the kind of things that were important that are important to consider from a work perspective. Um, There are times when we throw retreats where we have a home that is separate from the retreat that is staffed by um, childcare service so that parents can feel safe and comfortable knowing that their children are looked after, they are not too far and they're not being judged by other parents for enjoying themselves or getting education to be freaking better parents in my opinion. Yeah, totally. How how have you navigated conversations about sex with your kids? Pretty openly from the perspective of um, like where they are, you know, so it may be something like, so are kids dating at school right now? Who goes with who? And like, who goes with who? Mom, like, who says that? And I'm like, I do. What do the kids say? You know, and they're like, oh, like there are some people hooking up. I'm like, what does hooking up mean? How far is hooking up? And, you know, like, so we're, we, I ask questions. And um, I remember, oh, like, yeah, we, we used to, like, hooking up for us meant this. What does it mean for, for you? Um, other things that we do with our, like, and these conversations, like, are often other things that, like, I get these kind of, I have these opportunities more often than any will be in the car and a song will come on. So um, I use, I like to use the example of WAP. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll ask my daughter, like, what does that mean? And she'll be like, you know what it means. And I'm like, does anybody have a song about dry ass pussy? And she's like, seriously? And I'm like, there's loop for that. It's not, you know, and, and then I'll be able to kind of weave in how like we really shouldn't judge at different points in your life. You might experience. And of course she's sitting there like, okay, uh, mom. Mm-hmm. But it gives like the opportunity for me to drop a gem and for us also to be cognizant to, of what you're listening to. Right. You know. and, and in terms of your brand, are you providing parents with tools to be having these 
types of conversations yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah outside of the industry as well yeah um completely we do um so porn and parenting really how parents and children um, are interfacing with porn, how you can have that kind of conversation, as well as for people that are in the industry, what are some ways that you can, you know, explain the type of work that you do if you choose to disclose? Um, what are some of the threats that are involved with that? Some of the consequences, how do you navigate like the school system? Um, also bringing in other uh, sex positive resources like um child care, we have child care specialists, an attorney, and also uh, another mental health provider that provides um, services to children and families to talk about these conversations from a sex positive perspective. So people aren't just like, like, yeah, you are important. And the the laws are really skewed towards uh, having an impact on our families if they know that you do porn and have children. So you want to make sure that you do have a sex positive attorney that you can balance these questions um, back and forth with, or that you are seeking mental health services from Jump so that you have some support in when these things arise, if they arise. Uh, so yeah, we do a lot of workshops with parents and um, and also within the sex industry. Great. Well, just for my last question, I'd like to know, like, how do you see what what is radical, comprehensive sex? education look Mm. like if you could design it if it could Mm. you know be institutionalized in schools or just how you would counsel your best friend with her child or teenager (laughs) you know yeah I think the most radical is that it would be child informed Mm -hmm. I think that kids tell you where they are with their own um their own sexual journey I think some of the best education systems that I've seen have been sort of um, charter school modeled or uh, where maybe that's not the right word um, where the children are, are, are working and learning at their capacity. um, I'm not sure what the right model is, but Mm -hmm. you know, where maybe um, this child is reading at a third grade level, but they are first grade age. So they're learning that at third grade, they're re- going to reading comprehension with third graders and then coming back for socialization with first graders. Uh, so when I am thinking about child informed education, I, that's so radical to me where kids can ask questions and that they, so they have a safe, a, a space to ask questions and that their answers are provided to them where they are. Mm-hmm. Children are exposed to different things in their households. And I'm not saying um, from a patho- path- pathological space. Um, and kids are discussing these things when adults are not around. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we don't even know what our children know. So um, to me, radicalized education would be take, having more of an assessment of where children are. Mm-hmm. What have they been exposed to? What can we help explain to them in context? I do think that uh, that there is something to learn from I can't believe I'm about to say this, like both, both, both ends of the spectrum where there's this idea of like, if we introduce children to something, it's going to turn them on to something. Mm-hmm. And then this other idea of if we don't get ahead and introduce children to certain things, they're not going to understand when they are exposed to it. And I think that there's a middle ground for that. And that assessment is, what do you know? What do you want to know more about? How can I support you in learning? When you learn that, if there's more that you would like to know I'm here to support you for that too. And I think that we can have that type of uh, um, wraparound services and education from parents um, in, and at home and helping parents have those tools, helping parents go through their own sex education so that they are actually prepared to respond 
right. you know, how can we reparent parents so that they don't, they're not projecting their shame onto their children. Um, so I think there's that, right? And in order to do that, so my redesign of education does not start in education. This is the work that I do. I train uh, therapists on how to have sex positive attitudes with their clients. So when mom or dad are going to relationship counseling, I am asking therapists to also help influence their their, um, conversations around sex positive behaviors for their children. Um, to help have helping them have healthy attitudes and behaviors around sex is going to influence their children, right? So that's that in my mind is radical. Helping parents have these these kind of things institutionalized the same way, um, helping teachers mm-hmm. unlearn the shit that they learn, helping them address their own sexual shame, mm-hmm. helping them be prepared for that. Oh my gosh. Johnny touched Johnny. Um, Johnny touched uh, Jimmy in the in in the playground, and not blowing that into some big shameful, disgusting, homophobic thing. Just kids exploring kids. How to help you address your own homophobia real fast, right? And then support those children, right? Um, having that kind of education, like, so it's not a curriculum that we give to children. It's a curriculum that we all, we all invest in and get behind. And then we're prepared to deliver it to children when and how the children are ready to receive it. To me, that is the radical design, if you were to allow me to do that today. I would like to allow you to do that today, please, as soon as possible. <laughs> give me the funding and then clear <laughs> Everything else that is on my calendar for the next, like, I would say five years and we right. got it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I just interviewed um, the president of CECUS, the sexuality and uh, I don't remember the acronym is, but, you know, education, yes, yes, et cetera, yes. et cetera. Um, and just thinking about I was pushing, you know, how do we have more pleasure centric sex ed, especially for teenagers and middle schoolers? And how early does it start? And how can we not fear child sexuality, which is a very real thing that mm-hmm. as parents have that reaction of like, oh, my God, like, it's I, I feel dirty or it's not OK. Or I don't know how to handle this. We've like, passed it on to another generation Boom. right there. Yep. Right there. And um, and of course, Seekus is up against like, how do we just start by getting past abstinence only education. So their, their work is necessarily a little more centric, but I think having this, this more radical and progressive wherever we can is really so foundational. Mm-hmm. And Everywhere and every like sex has to be addressed in every institution because it lives there. It's violated there for damn sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the work that I was doing um, early on was intimacy, intimacy post-injury and intimacy post-illness and doing education to medical providers on how to bring, uh, how to bring sex, the conversation around sex at the bedside. So being able to say, like, you just had this heart attack. These are the medications that you on. A lot of couples are one are, are curious about when they can become intimate after a heart attack. It's perfectly fine. As soon as you start feeling comfortable, you know, maybe it's something that you, we will um, address again in six to eight weeks if you're feeling comfortable like that. That's it. The way that you give any other discharge, 
right? Because intimacy, ultimately, when people are fighting for their lives for anything, they're not fighting for like how many steps they're going to be able to take on their Fitbit or what they want to see the next season of whatever. They're literally fighting for their intimate relationships. You know, and I mean, so I'm an end of end of life um, practitioner, mm. as and those are the kind of things I try to inform my work. Like, what is really what tends to be important? What are people's really their core values are? You know, so it's intimacy, not necessarily sex, just intimacy, closeness, and relationships. And so, even that, like, if we can help, you know, medical providers who see people on a consistent basis be normalizing conversations around sex and the importance of pleasure and relationship building, then that's when we start to see like these radical shifts. It's like everybody's talking about it. And they're like, and, and that happens. We've seen cultural change with like, oh my God, everybody's talking about it. They keep asking me about depression everywhere I go. They want me. And next thing you know, we have the commercials for it. Everybody's allowed to be depressed now. Right. Culture shift. Right. Yeah. It's, it's what I hold on to as it, it seems so far to be able to have a radically reframed, like global relationship to sexuality. And yet we're all here doing our chipping away at it. And thank you for your multi-tiered approach to culture shift. And you're culture so making. welcome. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciated this interview. Yeah, this is really great. Well, thank you. This was awesome. Your work's awesome. You're doing so many things that are all just interweaving so beautifully. So, well, I will um, share this with you. And I was just going to say that I'm um, I'm actually going to be doing a, a big fundraiser and I'm still choosing for who and I'm open to suggestions as well. But I'm going to try and um, have it promoted through all of the guests on their platforms oh, and then partner with a bunch of other podcast hosts and see if we can all use our platforms to just raise a whole bunch of money. So Wow. That's so amazing. I know off the top of my head, it would be the BIPOC um, adult industry collective. Great. They're really doing some amazing things with mutual aid, but like, and anything that flows through there just goes right back, um, right out into the community for those that are in need. Okay, great. I wrote it down. Yeah. I'm asking, I'm I'm getting suggestions from all the guests and we'll see how we go about doing it, but I'll share that with you and hopefully collaboratively we can have these conversations have a direct impact somehow i love that well thank you so much i'm gonna pack up and get out of here thank you for your time and have an awesome weekend you too bye now if this conversation turned you on show us some love by dropping a five in the ratings leaving us a review and sharing the episode with a friend you're not just stroking our egos or libidos, but by helping us grow our audience, you're allowing these important conversations to reach more people and therefore evolve our collective erotic consciousness. Be sure to check out our website, strippersandsages.com, sign up for our mailing list, and follow us on social media to be informed about upcoming workshops and retreats. Special thank you to Esteban Alban, Liliana Estis, and Ben Euphrat for their audio engineering, and to Leslie Gonzalez for all her research and promotion. Stay sexy, folks.